Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. All right, welcome to this week's episode. We're sitting here at our division office in Edmond, Oklahoma, with a special guest, Stephen Seagrest from uh, Seagrest Oilfield Consulting. How's it going, man? Great. Good. You just uh, you got your pump on this morning, so you, you got that out of the way. Nice. Is that uh, part of the daily routine or what? I wish. You wish? Yeah. Yeah, you don't get to get in as much as you'd like? Yeah, I'd like a home gym. That way I don't have to drive. Driving's always what? Yeah. It makes P- it more difficult uh, to get up and go. You mentioned that PRX has a, a great in-home gym that's like a it's like a squat rack that folds against a wall. I've seen that. I've seen the video of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I know some guys that have it. And I mean, because a garage, a lot of times you have, whether it's kids stuff, wives, cars, none of the guy stuff in there, you know, it's, uh, it's nice to be able to fold it in. It's where, you know, when we do get a few minutes to, to pop it out and get after it. Yep. Take yeah. Take away the 15, 20 minute drive. <laughs> it makes it a lot easier to do it on a daily basis. For the listeners at home, uh, Justin and Steven both are like really fit guys. And <laughs> I run to not get fat, but they actually, you know, appear to work out on a regular basis. Um, so that's, that's the mental visual you can have as we have this conversation. There you go. Well, uh, and for the listeners, uh, you probably recognize the voice. That's Matt Offenbacher. And we also have Mr. James Strickland. Uh, James, why don't you say hello so people recognize your voice? Hey guys, glad to be here. Nice. Nice. Um, Steven, have you ever been on a podcast before? Nope. Never done it. Okay. So, uh, so this is new popping the cherry with the, uh, with uh, the podcast world, that's great. Do you listen to podcasts? I do. Okay, such do. as history podcast, mostly not industry. Okay, nice. So you're a history buff? Yeah, I do like listening to history. Dan Carlin's hardcore, hardcore history is a pretty good one. That okay, I listen to when I'm out of the yard and stuff like that. Nice, very good. Well, uh, before we get going, if you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and do us a huge favor to take a few minutes and leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to. Any feedback is welcome and appreciated, good or bad. I uh, just wanted to mention a few uh, reviews that we got in this week. Uh, this one's from Bella Bear Shaka Giant. Hopefully I pronounced that right. I look forward to each new episode. I only wish they were an hour each. Keep up the great work. I kind of laughed when I read that because, uh, you know, we always talk about when we do our technical podcast, we don't want to bore the listeners to death, but evidently we've got some listeners out there that want an hour long technical podcast. So we may have to feed it to them every once in a while. Yeah. And maybe we can get into some of our personal struggles and other things, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, another one came in from Redneck CSR. I really enjoy listening to this. Very informative for us oilfield hands to learn exactly what these chemicals we're mixing are doing. Thanks, guys. Keep up the good work. Uh, certainly appreciate all the feedback. We're starting to get more reviews now, which is great. So again, uh, any feedback is welcome and appreciated. So let's get going, Stephen. So what was life like prior to getting into the oil field? Why don't you tell a little bit about your journey and how you got to where you're at today? I was born in Midland, Texas. My dad was in the oil field, so I grew up Midland. There's not much else out there. Yeah. Uh, in 98, my parents got stuck out in Midland for 17 years. They moved out there before the downturn in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, owned a house, and the downturn hit, and the housing market crashed. Um, Go ahead if you need to take it, too. No, I'm fine. You're good? Um, and so they, my dad kept his job through the downturn in the eighties. And so owning a home and kind of stuck. And so we stayed in Midland and they were both from the Eastern side of Texas, Waco and, and Northeast Texas. And 
I uh, wanted to get back to an area where there's more lakes and trees and um, just, I guess, larger population base. And in 98, we moved to Houston uh, for work. My dad stayed in the oil field and I uh, was able to work in the Kingwood area for main office. And so he drove into the into the Houston city during the day, yeah, which made it not have to battle the traffic that anybody that lives in Houston knows about. I grew up in Kingwood. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I grew up in New Caney Porter. Oh, right on. Uh, yep. And then I went to Texas A&M uh, for college. I, you know, thought about going um, to a different school and playing football and decided that I want to do petroleum engineering. And nice. Texas A&M had a good one and had a little bit of family background at Texas A&M. And cool. So I knew what I wanted to do right out of high school and it was to do petroleum engineering and did that in four years and then came out and Thought I was going to go to work for Oxy. I interned with Oxy both summers. Um, they wanted me to go to Elk Hills okay. uh, out in Bakersfield. And and then uh, had a college buddy that I'd spent a lot of time studying with and, and uh, getting ready for tests with and stuff. And he had spent a summer, his last summer with Chesapeake and came back talking about, you know, kind of Aubrey's vision. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I went up and interviewed and, you know, they were offering a lot more than anybody else. And mm-hmm. And also offered the ability to stay in Texas instead of going out to California, and that seemed pretty exciting. And yeah, that's how I got involved in the Shell Revolution. You know, we didn't learn about it much in college. It was really just getting started when I got out of school. And sure, uh, horizontal drilling was not anything like it is today. You know, people had done it somewhat in the Austin Chalk and and some unconvent you know more conventional reservoirs, but you know the Barnett Shell was really all that was going then, uh, and came out and and the height of things, Chesapeake had. 44 rigs running in the Barnett. Mm-hmm. I think the Marcellus and the Fayetteville were starting to pick up. And then uh, I think I was out of school for six months. And then October of 2008 hit and things kind of took a tank. And I stayed in the field for almost three years. Okay. What were you doing in the field? Uh, sitting on rigs. And I did, a, I did a good bit of completion side work too, understanding the frack and the drill outs, but predominantly drilling. Right. Any fields in particular? I spent a lot of time in the Barnett and then a lot of time in the Haynesville Shale and a little bit of time in the Fayetteville with air drilling. And that was predominantly my air drilling experience before moving to the Northeast, which, you know, half the well bores are air drilled up there. Yeah. Yeah. That was interesting. Speaking of air drilling, I remember when I went up to uh, the Marcellus, actually say up to the Marcellus, I was in Calgary and I got sent down into the Marcellus. And uh, yeah, it was interesting because a lot of the rig hands and a lot of the drillers and stuff, they had just a significant amount of drilling experience, but it was all air drilling. So uh, the concept of, you know, loading a hole with synthetic back then, because that was 2010, 2011, right when things were kicking off. Uh, it was a new concept. So so a lot of, you know, interesting learning curves happening. Um, but, you know, good hands nonetheless. Uh, before we keep going, so you said you mentioned you went to A&M. And did you end up playing football at A&M no, or no? no? No. Okay. Engineering is, in fact, I looked at going to Trinity, which is in San Antonio. Yeah. And, uh, and on an academic scholarship because they were Division three, And um, I talked to the head coach, and he said he never had anybody graduate in four years doing engineering and playing football. I bet. I guess just because it's of how demanding it is? Load. Yeah, too demanding. And I knew I wanted to do engineering and kind of move to something else in life. And so yeah. – My dad studied metallurgical engineering at Ohio State, and I asked him what else he did, and he said – I had a date with a slide rule. <laughs> <laughs> That's a true story. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah, my, I think I lost some of my vision from all the all the books. time and books. Yeah, and I can imagine. Work life hadn't gotten any better. You know, computer screens aren't any better for your eyesight. Yeah, I've got contacts in. Reason I don't have my glasses on. Yeah, well, speaking. <laughs> so I had contacts for a long time. I ended up getting LASIK, and I know it's not for everybody, but. That's the best money I ever spent. So if yeah. you're ever considering it, man, I'm here to tell you it's the best. But uh, it, yeah, it, 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 like 
my per, my prescription was changing like almost every six months just because of that screen time. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's uh, I always feel for people with contacts, especially looking at a screen all day. It's drying out and um, it's like it can be a pain in the butt. But uh, before we, one more question. So A and M, obviously you're a football fan. Are you a Johnny Menzel fan? You know, when he was there, I was. When yeah. he was playing football for him afterwards, you know, things being to fall apart. I feel for the guy, you know. He probably should have stayed in college and right. would have been better for it, and he would have been too. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, he's but, had an interesting career path, and yeah. uh wish him the best. But uh, some of the most entertaining football I've seen was he, when he was on the field, you know. And, yeah. again, being from Canada, I was pretty pumped when he went to the Alouettes. Didn't do too much, but. I followed that whenever he went to the Alouettes Did just you? to see what was going on. And, yeah. You know. Isn't he playing in some, uh, some league now? It's like a low-level league in the u.s i think so yeah yeah, yeah it already went so. under actually oh, so did there's it? A, yeah, yeah there's a couple of those leagues starting up and the, the very first one it was like yeah johnny mansell's gonna be quarterback it was like and they don't have any money yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's too funny <clears throat> well uh well look so getting back to uh you know the drilling side of things you've been heavily involved in what we call super laterals uh some of which you know you worked with us with aes when you were at eclipse um so how did you guys as a company sort of approach it uh, and actually decide that this type of challenge was even feasible because until then uh, you know some of the the record like there was no real huge records being broken and, and you guys went from like um, and you can touch more I, I'm not familiar with the exact numbers but you it's not like you went 10% increase like you guys went above and beyond to drill I think what close to 30,000 feet and then the, the length of the lateral was 20, roughly 21, I think was the longest. Yeah. Which is, in, feet. which is insane. So do you mind describing kind of the approach as a company that, that went into that, some of the decisions without getting into the, you know, the details that you're not allowed to disclose, but it's yeah. just very interesting. So I remember, you know, early on when I was still at Chesapeake that people talked about, well, you can't do them so long. And, you know, there's a limit to it that, that that's going to limit the production and, and there's going to be a fall off in production. So you're wasting reserves. And and then uh, the downturn in 2015 hit and we spent a lot of money on the vertical wellbore, especially running a deep nine and five eights in the southern part of the Utica. And uh, I would say we probably credit the concept, the idea to Oleg Tomakev, our current COO at the merge company Montage, um, to really kind of come up with the, he came up with the concept and um, I think prior to that, we really looked hard at, at uh, multilateral, um, some multilateral technology. Um, and what do you mean by multilateral? Basically, uh, having a junction and drilling um, two legs to the wellbore. So you'd have one single vertical wellbore, but two horizontals coming off of it. Gotcha. Uh, it works probably great in, in, in conventional reservoirs where you don't have to frack them when you have to come back and you have to put a per, plug and per frack on them. It becomes much more complicated. And we looked at Baker's technology, the frack hook technology, and uh, we began to manipulate it a lot and do a lot of adjustments to it because it wasn't rated for the pressure we needed in the deep Monroe stuff where it really made sense to try to get down to one vertical wellbore, maybe two 10,000 foot laterals. Um, Spent a lot of energy looking into that. And then um, at the same time, we were looking at, well, what about the super lateral and can you plug and perf complete it? Because if you can't do it the way we normally do them, then it probably doesn't make sense to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, I think the most important thing as we began to look at it, um, uh, Delvina was our completion engineer that her and I kind of worked together on the concepts and the engineering work behind it. And um, we really had to focus on not just drilling it and getting the rig released off of it, but we also had to complete the well bore. Of course. We had to do it economically. And there's a point where coil tubing can no longer drill out plugs and 
if you screw up with a frack fleet on location where coral tubing can't reach it, it becomes much more difficult to get get the problem resolved and get back to fracking. And um, I think one of the in that early look, one of the most important facts that came out of it was was maintaining well bore tortuosity sure. so that the wire line work could be done um, without drum crush and, and other issues that happen whenever you've got way too much pull trying to pull remove wire line from the well bore coming out. Um, and so I think that was the kind of the holistic approach was probably the most important thing. And that was after other people began to attempt it, the things we kind of sat back and said, you know, they may be able to do it, but I have a feeling they're going to miss the holistic approach of drilling and completions has to work together. And that's traditionally always been a problem in every company I've ever been at or so been true. involved with is, is getting them to see the same vision, the same goal. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was probably the most unique and most important aspect as we got the project started was the fact that we were able to produce a single vision especially amongst all the way down through our, you know, our guys on the drilling side that we have to create a well bore that's completable. And right. if we fail to do that, then we're not, you know, we're not doing anything. And yeah. I mean, drilling guys want to get to TD and hand it off and you see how that gets complicated when the production people get angry. So, but, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead, Matt. I was going to say, you know, one of the things, so when I did the background research for the the paper we did together, um, one of the things I really enjoyed was reading not only the, the there were two things I noticed. One was, um, you know, publicly Eclipse was, was, was boasting, we did this all with conventional technologies. We didn't reinvent the wheel, wheel here. We didn't, we did this with good, strong engineering fundamentals. And you see that kind of come out. Uh, I've, I've read hundreds of drilling programs in my life and looking at what y'all do, it's very brick and mortar fundamental, but it has these checks, if this, then this clear guidance um, and it was one of the most clear and concise drilling programs I've ever read, honestly. Um, and so I really admire the discipline and the just the very conventional approach of let's do all of this right and we can still do really big things. And I really like to hear your thoughts as they relate to all of that stuff that you're talking about in the background. Um, I mean, some people say that it becomes difficult to read and follow because it gets to be so much information that's in that drilling prog. But for somebody that reads it for the first time, like a company man that's just moving into a program, it does have a lot of those catches, things that we've learned from making those mistakes over the last five, 10 years, uh, the whole group as a whole, but also myself. Um, and it's, you kind of got to highlight, I guess, the big points whenever you get into a developmental program. I mean, speaking to the procedure specifically, but whenever you're somebody coming into it new and haven't really, or beginning to look at Eclipse, or maybe you're going to go drill a well for Eclipse and be the guy that's actually on location, then it probably is worth reading cover to cover. I, I can't imagine they look at it every single time and say, I'm going to read everything looking for that one thing that Stephen or Sam Bond, who's our uh, company engineer, have changed. But uh I appreciate you saying that. That's- well, I, I think the catch is that a lot of people don't remember the history of why do we do this, right? We just continue to execute. And that's when I think people get into trouble is something's a little different. And almost every time it says, if this is different, even if there's not a direct, do this and call town, as opposed to scratch your head for a little while, try a couple of things that may be things we tried before and got us in this mess, and then call town. Um, it, it seemed to be there was a stop try something and then get back to me before we run too far off the the main path. Um, and I just think that I, I feel like it's a lesson to us all in how we communicate. Um, but that was one cool thing about the paper is I, I tried to emphasize some of those elements. 
Um, so I'll boast that I contributed a lot to the paper, but I think it turned out to be a good paper. So I hope y'all <laughs> take the time to read it and maybe you'll agree or disagree. <laughs> we can put the link in the show notes, right? Cause it's Absolutely. on the AAD website. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's very interesting. Uh, Steven, one question I had, and you mentioned, you know, the drilling group was, was very, uh, you worked very well with the completions group and you guys had a similar vision. Uh, that sounds to me like a sort of a company culture thing. Did that, is that sort of something that was, um, sort of set by the leaders of the company and sort of trickle down effect? I mean, how, I mean, why don't you think a lot of companies are able to adopt that sort of culture? Because ultimately the result is success. Um, so why, so how did that affect you guys or what, what drove that? I mean, I think we have a very special drilling group. Our drilling group mainly stayed fully intact as we went from Eclipse to merging with Montage. And uh, But whenever Andy and I both left Chesapeake to come over to work for Eclipse, it was to come over to work for Oleg Tolmakev, who's our COO. And he's mostly got a completion background, and he's he, but he trusts Andy and I's judgment and, and leadership of the drilling side. And it was his direction. And us knowing what we had to do to make it feasible on the completion side, um, but I would probably contribute it to just the whole team that we've got together at the old Eclipse guy as well, the the montage drilling group, which is really being unchanged through the merger. Um, it's just people buying in um, and and good good people that are allowed to do, you know. They're, they all provide some aspect and giving them the ability to perform and not micromanage them and but give them a clear concise goal and, and explain the the uh the you know the outline or what they have to do to get to their goal and letting them be involved and collaborate and uh, we have directional specialists um, we have mud specialist damon gate who who y'all work with very closely um but like the wellbore tortuosity thing, you know, getting those guys to buy in because they were directional drillers before and their entire career they've they focused on fast, fast, fast. And that that goes from drilling the lateral, which, you know, is down the rotary steerable. So there's not as much technical, but the air section is really where I think we shown and there was different aspects to the BHA that we modified and changed, but it was also allowing those directional specialists to begin to understand tendencies and and uh, we try to avoid sliding in certain sections of the wellbore um, so that we can make it in one or two bit runs. But we still have to foster a good, smooth wellbore. No kidding. Did uh, I'd imagine there was a lot of modeling that went into the planning stages, right? I mean, oh, yeah. so did, did the did the final product match the models that you guys sort of predicted, like pretty good? Or? Torque and drag did. I think we kind of learned as we went in Guernsey County. Um, we didn't seem to have the same hole cleaning problems, but I think that was something that uh, the Eclipse guys and the AES guys worked on, and we really kind of figured it out. We believe at this point that Monroe was a little different. At first, I think there was a lot of belief that the wellbore was deteriorating, mm. um, that we had some kind of issue, and maybe it was mud weight driven. Um, but the signs really pointed to it being more hole cleaning. And when you drill for you know seven or eight days straight at 2,000-plus feet a day, that's something that not anybody else does. One thing you begin to see is the hip, the temperature increase. It was a problem we had with motors chunking as we approached TD. Right. Because if you looked at what the MWD was saying, we were gaining temperature every hour we were circulating. Well, if you circulate for seven days and you're gaining temperature consistently, <laughs> by the time you get to TD, you're in hot hole conditions. Yeah. And the, the <clears throat> rubber that you're using, the hard rubber that's traditionally been used in the POB rubber used in the Northeast, which is temp- 
you know, temperature wise, not, not hot at all. Um, well, by the time you reach TD, you're, you're looking at 265, 270. Wow. Well, if the motor, that's what the MWD is seeing. If the motor's below it and the motor's, you know, chrome and rubber interacting, it's probably a little warmer. And so now you're up above 300 possibly. And that's why we, what we were contributing some of the motor chunking to. But um, I think we learned as we went that controlling the, uh, the plastic viscosity as we drill the lateral was very difficult for day and day and day. And when you maybe drill a 10,000 foot lateral, you know, maybe you got up to 30 PV by the time you TDE'd, but you were done and there was time to recondition the mud as you were putting it into storage or maybe while you were drilling the curve on the next well and you're not making nearly as much hole. Um, but in the situation where you're drilling lateral and you're getting pretty good footage every day and you're drilling a shell that has a very high carbonate content, everybody knows the Utica compared to Marcellus looks like coffee grounds when it comes across a shaker. And so it's more difficult to clean the mud than it is in a, in a more true organic shale. Yeah. Um, and especially when you get longer lateral, you just get a longer conveyor belt slash grinding zone that you're pulverizing those cuttings. Um, and so it was a back to focusing on the solids control and how do we keep that PV down and what are methods to, to controlling low gravity solids, you know, to actually stay up with the flow rates. Um, and so we've, done some unique things with adding centrifuges and running more centrifuges in the backyard than most people say is that you need for a bay rat recovery we're kind of in that transition should we be running bay rat recovery or shouldn't we mm-hmm. well we're typically 12.5 to 12.8 and i've always heard 12.5 is the cutoff so what do you do do you run bay rat recovery or don't you yeah um and we've found that yes you do but you you can't just run one high speed and one big bowl lower speed bay rat recovery centrifuge and and multiplying that same setup is uh, the only way you're going to keep the PV down and the low grads down. And if the PV gets up above a 30, you start to get preferential flow. And along the top of the wellbore, you break down one piece of that conveyor belt that, that K&M's always preached about. And then you start to see the problems of hole cleaning. The only time you see them usually is when you're trying to get the, well, the rotary steerable BHA out of the wellbore, not drilling. Yeah. Well, and, and I think it goes back to that discipline. Um, because it does seem like there's this strong commitment to fundamental A, B, and C. And um, I guess the, the, the question I'd ask about that is everybody seems to be on the same page, which we work with a lot of different operators where that there's very degrees of that, where it's like, no, no, this is, this is what we do as a company. Um, and I feel like that ability to make decisions and everybody to get on board with that commitment, be it we're going to slow down on directional and we're going to make a smooth borehole because we know the consequences um do you think that just all goes back to the culture and you all have this mutual respect for one another or are there some kind of headbutting and someone has to step down and say i will accept that we're going to commit to this because we got a job to do there's headbutting i mean is it with any group of a bunch of alpha males that think that they know everything and they're always right there's there's always disagreements and um the way it's typically been handled amongst our group is in the end, usually it's Andy and I who sit down and, and come to a conclusion. We we listen and talk to everybody, but if if everybody can't get on the same page or there's still disagreements, it's you do gotta have to a leadership um role to play. But no octagon cage matches or anything like it, that. It, it sometimes gets almost to that point. <laughs> yeah. you know, feelings get hurt. The people's elbow comes out. <laughs> <laughs> but we've learned things by doing, you know, I think it was, uh, I, I think it was actually Kyle Bradford who didn't even come from a true horizontal 
drilling background, had done most of his unconventional time in the oil field on the completion side, um, that said, well, you know, if if y'all are having problems and you think it's it's not maintaining that PV, couldn't we just process more volume? And so we said, well, yeah, but it's going to cost more day rate. And so it was a kind of a willingness to say, well, if, if if the company employee wants to give it a try, it's just more money. And I really think that's what contributed to to figuring it out. We I don't think we drilled another thirty thousand plus footer in Monroe, but we drilled a several 28,000 footers on the bowling pad after we became kind of the merge company and they began to cut the laterals back. And it's, a lot of that was just driven by, you know, the economics as gas prices came up. And now that they're back down again, we may see a return to it. I don't know. Um, but, you know, you, you don't turn out wells as fast. It's, it's traditionally, if you look at companies, they, they would traditionally have, um, you know, maybe two drilling rigs for every one frat crew they have running. Because you're trying to keep a, a good balance, you know. Neither side wants to be picking up and laying down. It it kills efficiencies to work with a frat crew for only a, a pad and then release them. You'd rather have follow me work and work with the same people well after well, and you get a lot of efficiency drivers out of that. That's how they get ten stages a day um, is is efficiency drivers and, and having worked with the same crews for a long period of time. But what we were finding with the superlateral program is that you almost needed one frat crew to one drilling rig. And so it kind of changed the dynamics of that. And the reason being is because it takes a lot more time to complete these wells because you, even if you're doing a zipper frack and you're able to do the wireline work offline, it takes longer. Um, it takes longer to do the wireline work when you're 28,000 feet out than it does at 16,000 feet. Um, and the pump down is more complicated. Um, flushing the wellbore and getting the wellbore cleaned up prior to the pump down is more complicated and more time consuming. Um, and so as, you know, last year when gas prices were, were you know, above $4, it was, well, we're, we, need to, we need to turn wells in line faster. And so the, uh, the company, the merging company's mentality became more the direction of turning wells in line faster, so we need to shorten laterals. So it's yet to be seen, you know, as they look at the economics some of the stuff has to be longer. You know, like I said, the Bolin, those were 16,000-foot laterals. Those are driven simply because we're in a mountainous terrain and there's limited pad sites. Um, we, we were able to test it there. We got out of the well significantly easier than some of the challenging times when we were scratching our head and all working together on why is this area more difficult to remove the BHA from the well bore than the dozen or so we did in 2017 um, in Guernsey County, Ohio. So, um, I really feel like we kind of solved it, figured it out that it was a whole cleaning and that, you know, keeping, keeping the PV down to keep the conveyor belt system working the entire time we're drilling, um, was the way to solve it. And the only way to keep your PV down is to have adequate solids control for the, for the project you're doing. We've continued to do that. Most of our well borders are in excess of 10,000 and we've continued in Monroe to, to keep a, a larger centrifuge package set up in our backyards. Well, and with the Utica, I mean, it is one of those, I'd never seen anything like it when I looked at those pictures of cuttings. It was like, how do you even get this stuff out? Um, you know, I was like dilute and kind of shrugged, yep. but um, it, even, even aligning up the equipment, it's like a Utica specific solids control package almost. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a huge factor in mud quality. Um, and whenever I do technical support for Utica wells, it immediately is the first thing in the back of my mind is what are we doing to keep the mud clean? Is that a factor? 
Um, but yeah, a huge challenge. And I can imagine doesn't matter how far you drill that crap's getting in the in the mud yep and if it low grabs go up pv goes up and you start to get preferential flow and you break down the conveyor belt effect and if you aren't moving cuttings out i mean typically when you're drilling ahead even if you've broken down something in that conveyor belt effect you're not going to notice it as highly maybe your torque starts to getting a little high and a little erratic but you have saltation effect you know cleaning as well and so you can have a, a tall layer of cuttings, but it can only get so tall when you're still flowing five, fifty, six hundred gallons a minute before you just have a saltation cleaning effect. Yeah. Um, but when you've got to remove a, a rotary steerable BHA with two to three f- almost full gauge stabilizers from the wellbore, you have to clean the hole. You have to at least clean it up to a certain degree. And these Monroe County wells are even more tricky because you're talking 10-6 TVD. Um, a lot of times we were running a tapered BA, a tapered drill string, so we had five and seven eighths on top, and the rig's five inch on bottom. Um, but the hook loads to get it coming on elevators, if you do have a clean hole, were so high that I think um, it, it makes you nervous. You know, you you can't pull five hundred fifty thousand, and you don't have that much to go down because if it really is something that's that in the pull's happening down hole, it's not just a cumulative drag effect. You don't have enough to go back down and get yourself free. Right. And then when you start, we had to deal with one on uh, the Roth pad last year, 2018, before the companies merged, that it's very difficult to fish at that depth. Um, tractor, you know, I, th- I can't remember the sizes exactly. I haven't done a lot of tractor work, but um, the your ability to go out and get you know something cleaned out or do, do work with a tractor becomes, just like coil tubing, becomes limited. Um, the five and seven eighths, if I remember correctly, it was like a three and an eighth versus two and an eighth tractor sizes. And the two and an eighth could go in the, the five inch, but, uh, the three and an eighth could not three and an eighth had enough power to get down to where we needed to get, but the two and an eighth didn't. Mm. And so you run into a lot of, we had some fishing challenges, you know, that were related to super laterals and you want to try to avoid those because those are the most difficult things to deal with when you're that far out. Yeah. So, uh, more so on the, on the completion side of it, and you may have already touched on it, but was, uh, was the, the whole point to doing this driven by, let's see, uh, how much more production we could get out of it? Or was it more of like, you were limited on, you know, on surface, you had to go out that far. I mean, what, like backing up even further, like, where was the driving factor? Like, you know what, let's try and see if this is even feasible. In 2015, I mean, like I said early on, everybody said that you're going to reach a point of diminishing returns from your production. You're going to have back pressure from the stages near the heel. That's going to limit your production from the stuff out near the toe. And, and you're just, you're, you're wasting reserves is what people had said that I'd heard early in my career. And right. And I had heard that quite a bit too. So when I seen this happening, I was like, oh, that kind of goes against what common belief. So yeah, the production from the wells that we drilled said that that's not really a factor. You know, we didn't see any reduced recovery and the, the driving factor in doing it was we had a deep intermediate. We had a, had to drill 12 and a quarter deep on air, which, you know, with all the fuel spend and the air package becomes expensive. And if you could eliminate one of the two vertical well bores, um, it drives up the rate of return on the well. And uh, so you eliminate one of the big cost pieces from a total well AFE, and and it drives the economics to, so, to improve hmm. economics. Going to completion technology, I guess this is so I used to be heavily involved in open hole completions. Uh, so I was involved in a lot of stuff, Sockland Island and, um, you know, Eastern Canada and, and uh, Azerbaijan, like a number of those projects. 
And we were always looking at technologies like inflow control devices and other, you know, pressure equalization for these really long horizontal wells with the idea that if I pulled too hard at the heel, I would cut early on water. And these are all oil wells. Okay. So mm-hmm. uh, for, for the most part, um, do you see any kind of technology like that helping? I mean, I mean, I know it's conventional frack, unconventional frack is just such a different animal, but do you see some of that hardware maybe someday being a player? I don't know, because you're not really as worried about, you know, the water encroachment from below and like a water drive reservoir. Um, these unconventionals, the reason why I would think that, you know, that that theory kind of went to, you know, led to nowhere as far as the wells that we've had now, I guess you're looking at two years of production and like the purple haze, the first one we drilled, um, is that you don't have the water cut you're worried about coming in. Uh, as much on these unconventionals because you just deplete it until it it stops producing essentially, and I don't think that it goes from maybe in the purple haze and in the in the Guernsey County stuff you may have a difference because it is a retrograde gas, but um, I think that in the hill as you draw it down, the toe begins to contribute more. Okay, you know, that was so I was also thinking balancing draw down at the toe is probably more for at least a gas well where people are saying well you got too much friction you can't you can't pull on that. Um, but we you did think- say that you need to drill them up, dip, you know, on the, on the oil wells, okay. the gas yeah. wells, the Utica's, I think the still the lowest conate water shale that anybody drills commercially. And so these dry gas wells, after our frac fluids recovered, we don't make a lot of fluid out of them. So down dip on the gas wells, these are really high pressure wells. I mean, you're talking um, flowing pressures, 9,000 PSI range. Um, so I don't, it's got plenty of drive to recover all that frac fluid. We were very cognizant in the development planning to try to drill every one of these superlaterals in the wet gas region up dip to try to allow for it to drain to the hill. For, for the listeners who aren't familiar with that terminology, can you describe what up dip means? The formations that we're drilling are, are tilted to some degree in, in one direction or another direction, meaning on the map north. Mm-hmm. We traditionally expected dip to be about a 150 degree azimuth to the southeast okay um it ish um it changes regionally in in the utica but um typically then over a long distance say a four mile lateral you have a decent uh tbd change from landing point to the toe sure and so you know liquid wants to follow the path of release resistance and gravity plays an effect in that so the landing point's lower than the toe. Gravity helps bring the liquids to where the artificial lift is placed, which is, you know, with today's technology at the best, probably at landing point. Gotcha. How many feet roughly are you talking TVD? Like 20 feet or like 50 or like 100 feet? Or how do you know? If I remember correctly, I mean, we were looking at almost 300 feet on these. Oh, wow. So pretty good. From the toe to the heel, because you're, you're dipping from somewhere between half a degree and a degree. Gotcha. Um so I think the, the targets were somewhere between 90 and a half and 91. And that was one of the helpful things of the, the Point Pleasant in Ohio is it's pretty flat. You know, mm-hmm. if you got up into northern, northern PA and we're drilling the Marcellus on superlaterals, and that's dry gas as well. So maybe that would help. But I don't know how well you could handle some of the 15 degree, you know, drilling at 105 degree inclination, you know. Yeah. No kidding. It's tough. Yeah. <laughs> so... Another thing that, that sort of comes to mind is I have a lot of friends who are in the investment community. We talk to other drilling engineers, and they all kind of want to know about these super laterals to one degree or another. Um, and the thing that fascinates me is y'all are pretty open about what you're doing. Um, there seems to be a, a pretty comfortable 
confidence and just, Hey, we'll, we'll share, we'll, we'll tell you what we're up to. Um, and so I'm always intrigued when people ask like, Oh, do you know what they're up to or what are they doing? I'm like read their press releases. I mean, like it's, it's not like they've got this secret sauce They're They, they, and going back to that discipline, but um, I guess, um, do you feel like it is just one of those you're, you've got a group of, of kind of proud engineers who, who want to brag about their, you know, what a great job they think they're doing or how they're doing something pretty revolutionary or, or is it, um, is there a mindset that makes you very confident? Cause some other operators would be like, that's our secret. No one can know. Um, what, how do y'all position yourselves in that way? Some of it's, you know, they're publicly traded. So, um, ever since I think it was late 14 that, that Eclipse went public and obviously the downturn hit. And so their stock price is always, you know, it's kind of been on this ever downturning slide. And after, since the merger, they've lost something like 60, 70% of their stock price. Mm-hmm. And so some of that is just technology, you know, a release of the idea, the concept, what we're doing to try to drum up some of it on the, you know, we are publicly traded. And so you try to get your name out there and show what, what we're doing that's, that's unique and different. Makes sense. Um, I think that was one of the driver for trying to be more open about it. But so much of it's you know, the same thing everybody else is doing, maybe just doing it better. You know, yeah. so there's not a a great deal of secrets. It's just can others figure out how to do what they're currently doing, but all aligned to the same goal and focus on things that have to be done in order to make it work. Yeah, and to well, that point, if you want to properties, yeah, you know, BHA design, drill string design, the completion design. Um, working with the right vendors, you know? Yeah. Right vendors. Well, <laughs> I, I was going to add, uh, you know, the, the paper, we reference a lot of those releases and information. So if you want to read up yourself, I mean, the information's out there um, and it's, it's referenced in the paper. Obviously you can just search for it on a, a web browser, but um, Eclipse montage, they're, they're pretty open with what they're doing. And so if you want to learn a few good fundamentals um, it's, it's worth a look. There you go. Well, before we slowly start to wrap this thing up, I, I do have a, a question more from a personal standpoint. <clears throat> we all know Drilling's 24-7, 365. Um, and as long as you got a rig running, which can, you know, which obviously you do. I mean, it's it's ever demanding weekends, evenings, um, lots of late calls, working holidays. So for the young listeners out there, um, what's your biggest word of advice? I mean, you're, you're, we're roughly the same age. You've obviously got a ton of experience, but uh, how, how do you keep yourself driven and motivated to, to just continue to, to uh, perform at a high level day in and day out? Uh, obviously, you, you say, you know, you got working out, wife, kids, whatever. But what would you say for a young drilling engineer who wants to take over the world? Any good advice? Uh, there's other things in life other than just the industry, though. I've seen a lot <laughs> of them that have burned themselves out. And, mm-hmm. um, I was expanding and doing more as a consultant. Um, and I've got another kid that's due uh, early September. Congrats. Thank you. And I've had to had to uh, take a the holistic approach that I need to dial it back a little bit myself. And so sure. you got to you gotta find other things or you can burn yourself out. I mean, you can be overly involved in it and overly committed to it. I have friends that um, are still single, not really dating anyone spend more time on the rigs than they do at their own house. And they've, you know, they're, they're, they're fully committed, but you know, Mm -hmm. you can become overly, overly involved and begin to miss key things because you're, you're burned out. Yeah. Don't burn yourself out. And (laughs) companies will, companies love for them to burn themselves out. Yeah. Yeah. And I moved to work for Chesapeake. It was the same way. You know, I got one question. So you talk about the different challenges 
or the circumstances really in the northeast with the the terrain and the dry gas and that kind of like um made these superlaterals economical i don't know how much you know about the permian basin or any of these other um regions but should we expect to see 20,000 foot laterals in the permian basin do you think that it's economically feasible because obviously the terrain is extremely flat it's mainly a oil play um i'd just like to hear your opinion about that you know i think like the you know i've done a good bit of looking at the delaware basin and and i've been involved with point energy partners um they just finished their first well uh they're moving over to do their second um and they the first bit of plan was shorter but their ceo was was part of the original eclipse group and he left probably 3 or 4 years ago and um i do see that i think he wants to push and try these longer laterals and then looking at it on paper the only thing that as you're just looking at economics begins to to hurt you is how many time, how many BHAs are you going to have to use to drill the lateral? If it takes you four or five bits and you're having to trip every time for a new bit um, from deep depths within the lateral, especially if you're having to do cleanup cycles in order to to prepare the wellbore to come out, you know if you're drilling 50, 60 foot an hour, you know and you're circulating 600 gallons a minute, your cleanup cycles aren't going to be nearly as long as they are when you're drilling. 250 foot an hour and so i know like the wolf camp the ropes are even even upper wolf camp a aren't as high as what we see in the utica um and so maybe the trips can be done a little faster um but when you start seeing like lower wolf camp b and they start having to you know the ten thousand foot lateral may requ- require four or five bits i see it becoming very difficult to make it make economic sense but you know the whole reason why the super lateral thing came about to begin with was Deep nine and five eights um, is expensive, and so and it's a very challenging. I know the Delaware is very challenging to drill that deep nine and five eights. Some people are not even doing deep nine and five eights; they end up with slim hole design. Their completion ends up being subpar, or they still do the old four string design, stopping and setting uh, uh, their first intermediate in the Lamar lime so that they can drill the the second. You know, drill the Delaware group uh, lighter, but drill the first intermediate through the salts with fully saturated brine. Um, the, the, the first well they did, I think they left the hole open for almost 20 days and they used, uh, the direct emulsion mud system that we first talked about that AES introduced me to. Um, and they had no problems. They didn't lose any mud. Uh, they saw a little bit of flow on some trips, uh, from the saltwater injection zones that were sitting open. Um, but Again, though that that mud system is more expensive than than cut brine for the for the Delaware group or a fully saturated brine for the salts. Um, so, and the twelve and a quarter bits, you know, are much. You know, it, it may take two or three bits, and if you got the second bone full of um, of chert, it may take you know may Eight take bits. a tricone or may take <laughs> yeah it may take many bits to get through. And so, when you have a twelve and a quarter, that's very difficult to drill it does begin to make more sense for the super laterals. I don't think that you can do slim hole on these super long laterals, your hydraulics and the, the small pipe you end up pushing with becomes kind of limiting. Um, I've never done a great deal of research into can four and three quarter tools handle 20,000 foot laterals. Um, but I would think probably you'd run into too many uh, showstoppers that would become too complicated to, to resolve. And maybe not, but. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think we've seen, uh, there was one operator that drilled a pretty long lateral in the Eagle Fur, and that, 
that got some attention. But on on the Permian, you hear the the what ifs, and a lot of it, the you know, acreage is still consolidating, and you've got lease lines and other other things where it's like, well, we couldn't even try it if we wanted to. Um, but you're right; it's it's a it's a different animal. But perhaps with some engineering discipline from Seacrest Oilfield Consulting, uh, you know, may, maybe it could be done. Right. Right. Shame I need a website. Blood. I need a link. Shame. I need a link to this. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll put your LinkedIn in the show notes, man. You may have many projects coming up. You never know. Um, gentlemen, do we have any other questions or thoughts on anything? No. no thanks for being here. This was, I learned a lot just sitting across the table from you. I appreciate you. it. Yeah, awesome. Well, Stephen, appreciate it. Appreciate your service to the oil field and uh, helping uh, break down barriers, man. So you have yourself a good one. All the listeners out there, if you have any questions, hit us up on Flowline Podcast at aesfluids.com. We'll put the link in the show notes. Uh, and that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of the Flowline. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.